0: Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the weekly UK True Crime podcast. I'm Adam. Today we go to the Welsh capital, Cardiff. As you'll know, this podcast tends to focus on smaller, lesser-known crimes. But today I've made an exception and we examine this much higher-profile crime purely because it's one that had a major impact on me when I was studying at university in South Wales. Lynette White was born on the 5th of January 1967 to parents Terry and Peggy. They split when Lynette was young and soon after Terry married 16-year-old Carol White. The two lived in Cardiff and Terry's daughter with Peggy, Lynette, lived with them and the two children of their own they went on to have. This was a son Terence and a daughter called Kyra. Both of the younger children doted on their elder stepsister and dad Terry idolised Lynette, showering her with love. Lynette was a pupil at Rumney High School in Cardiff, but she left school without any qualifications and she was attracted to the nightlife of the Cardiff docks area, so she moved into a bedsit there. Although it's hard to believe now, with the transformation of the docks in Cardiff, this was the seedy red light district of Cardiff back then, and Lynette was working as a prostitute in the area. Towards the end of 1987, she was interviewed by Tim Rogers, a BBC Wales journalist, as part of an investigation into child prostitution. Rogers said that Lynette was probably the most visible prostitute working in Cardiff at that time. She told Rogers she'd been working as a prostitute since the age of 14, when she'd been drugged and taken to Bristol by a gang of men who forced her into prostitution. After making her way back to South Wales, she had found herself trapped in a continual spiral of prostitution. In 1988, now aged 20, Lynette was living in a flat in Dorset Street, Cardiff, with her boyfriend Stephen Pineapple-Miller. Miller was black and he was known locally as Pineapple due to the way he wore his dreadlocks bunched on top of his head. Miller was a Londoner who'd been in Cardiff just for a short time and he became both Lynette's boyfriend and her pimp. Lynette was Miller's only source of money and she felt under pressure to work the streets to fund his cocaine addiction. Lynette was also a regular user of cocaine. Pretty and popular with clients, Lynette could earn up to £100 a night. Of that £100, Miller would take up to £90 for himself. Friends say that Lynette was under pressure from Miller to make money all the time. She worked on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Each day the routine was the same. Miller would drive her to Riverside in Cardiff where she worked before meeting with her at the North Star Club in the evenings to collect her earnings. On the 9th of February 1988, Lynette disappeared. Her neighbours, Paul Coombs and Ian Johnson, who were renting rooms in the same house, thought it was very odd. Coombs saw Lindsay Wrigley and it was unusual for her to vanish. Worried about her, he began his own investigation amongst prostitutes who worked nearby. Earlier that month, Leanne Vilday, another prostitute, had loaned Lynette the keys to a flat above a bookie's where she entertained clients at Flat 1, 7th St James Street in Cardiff. Leanne was unable to access the flat without the key, and by the 14th of February, she hadn't seen Lynette for six days and she was also looking for her. Lynette was due to be called as a witness for the prosecution in two upcoming court cases, so it was assumed she'd deliberately been keeping a low profile to avoid giving evidence. There were serious cases too, with the first being an allegation of attempted murder, and the second was an allegation of attempting to procure the services of a 13-year-old girl for prostitution. When Lynette disappeared, the police began actively searching for her, and a judge issued a warrant for her arrest to ensure that she attended the first trial, which was scheduled for Cardiff Crown Court on the 15th of February, 1988. William Demond was a local man who used to drive to the Butetown area of Cardiff every evening to talk with prostitutes, who he insisted he never used professionally, and he'd developed a friendship of sorts with Vilday and Lynette. On February the 14th, he spoke to Vilday, who asked him to drive her to the flat in James's Street. When there, she asked another flat occupier to drop a spare set of keys from a window and she let herself in through the main door. But even then, she could not enter her own flat. She returned to the car and was clearly concerned. She could see through the letterbox that the door to the kitchen was closed when it was normally left open, secured by a rope tied to the handle and a worktop. Demond drove her to Butetown Police Station where she spoke to two police officers and explained their concerns about Lynette. P.C. Johnson was aware that Lynette was a missing witness in a court case and the officers had also been looking for her. P.C. Anthony Prosser had spent much of the weekend looking for Lynette and along with two of his colleagues, he drove to James Street hoping to arrest her. While Demond and Vilday waited outside, the police officers had to force entry which they did so by kicking in an internal door. On searching the bedroom, they found Lynette's lifeless body. It was 9.17pm. The room was sparse, with a bed being the only item of furniture. Lynette's dead body was lying between the foot of the bed, which was the room's only furniture. She was still clothed, but with one shoe off. Her throat had been cut from the right ear across the front and around to the left side of her neck, exposing the bones of her spine. There were multiple stab wounds to her chest and breasts, and other wounds to her face, stomach, arms, wrists and inner thighs as well as defensive wounds on her hands, suggesting that she'd fought desperately for her life. The pathologist, Professor Bernard Knight, described it as a mutilating attack with sexual overtones, and he identified a total of 69 wounds. Although she'd been stabbed seven times in the heart, he concluded it was the throat injury which killed her. He said, It would require considerable force because the skin, muscles, larynx and voice box had been cut right down to the neck bone. Speculating on how the wound could have been inflicted, he said it was a normal reflex for a person to keep their head down in such a situation, and her head may have been forcibly held back for the knife wound to be inflicted. One of the two t-shirts Lynette was wearing was absolutely lacerated. It it was said it looked like like a colander. There was heavy blood staining to the base of the bed, the carpet and the walls of the room. There was however very little blood on the mattress where an opened but unused condom was found. Forensic examination found 150 different sets of finger and palm prints at the flat, which, which you might expect for the purposes it was being used. Azospermic semen, this is a uh, fertility condition, which is sometimes known as no sperm count, was found present both in Lynette's vagina and her underwear, which pathologists determined had been deposited there within six hours of her death. Some of the blood found on Lynette's clothing, including her exposed sock, was found to be from a male with the blood type AB. Lynette's wristwatch had stopped at 1.45am. This is likely to be her time of death, and it's backed up by witnesses in the local area who heard screams in the early hours of the morning between 1.30 and 2. The subsequent murder inquiry was led by Detective Chief Superintendent John Williams, the head of South Wales CID. Williams had joined the police back in 1954 when aged just 16 and he'd worked his way through the ranks. Due to the nature of Lynette's work and the chaotic life she led, there were no shortage of suspects. Appeals for information led to a number of witnesses describing a white male, approximately 5'8 to 5'10, aged in his mid-30s, with dark hair and a dishevelled appearance. He was seen in a distressed state in the vicinity of the James Street flat in the early hours of Valentine's Day. He appeared to have cut himself on the hand and he had blood on his clothing. An EFIT of the suspect was compiled, and in March 1988, Williams appeared on the BBC television programme Crime Watch UK, appealing for information about this man, who police believed was responsible for Lynette's murder. On the 25th of February, the police detained an individual who bore a striking resemblance to the EFIT but he was released the following day after providing an alibi which was supported by a third party. The suspect, seen outside the flat, was never possibly identified. Another person of interest was Francine Caudle, the accused in the court case due to have taken place in February, where Lynette was due to give evidence. Caudle and her mother Peggy were both questioned by police. However, the discovery of the blood group found on Lynette's clothing wasn't a match, and this enabled the police to eliminate them both from their inquiries. Lynette's boyfriend Stephen Miller was another key suspect. The police initially questioned him the day after Lynette's body was found, but he was able to give a clear statement detailing his whereabouts during the key times. Another witness also gave a statement to the police supporting his movements. When Miller was initially questioned, he was still wearing the clothes he'd been wearing at the time of the murder. These were dirty and unwashed. The police even joked with Miller during his initial interview that he should sit in the opposite corner of the room due to the smell of his clothing. Crucially, there were no traces of blood at all found on them. His car was also forensically examined with no result and his blood type did not match that found on Lynette's clothing. Miller was released without charge with detectives confirming that he'd been ruled out of their investigations. By April... Officers on the case had compiled a list of 12 people potentially of interest to them based on their previous criminal activities. One of these people was referred to only as Mr X. He was a convicted sex offender and paedophile who lived around 20 minutes driving distance from where Lynette was killed. This man had a history of using prostitutes and he admitted that he'd previously paid Lynette for sex. With a history of mental illness, he'd been classified as a psychopath by his doctor. When interviewed by the police, Mr X couldn't provide an alibi to cover the key times and he was blood type AB. He was brought in for questioning and interview. Detective, Constables, Graham Togood and Paul Fish, they thought he was guilty and they believed that had he been pressed, he would have confessed to Lynette's murder. But instead, it was decided to adopt a softly, softly approach until they had the DNA results from the crime scene. On the 19th of October, Mr X was placed under surveillance for three days. And by the twenty fifth of October, the detective Munccher was so convinced that Mr X was their man he requested further surveillance, which took place between the twenty seventh and the thirtieth of October. On the seventh of November, detectives informed DCS Williams that Mr X was now the prime suspect. But to the immense frustration of the police, just two days later, the results of the DNA analysis completely eliminated. Mr X from their investigation Now their case against Mr X no longer stood up the police went back to looking at statements from other witnesses Among them were statements from Paul Atkins and Mark Gromek Gromek lived in the flat immediately above where Lynette was murdered Both men gave alibis for their whereabouts at the time of the murder but under pressure from the police Atkins eventually gave a statement on the 20th of April in which he first said that Gromek had killed Lynette and then confessed to killing her himself. The text is recorded that Atkins first stated that Gromek had gone to the flat to have sex with Lynette and after hearing a scream, Atkins went down and saw Gromek exiting the flat covered in blood and carrying a bloodstained knife. Atkins later said he'd met White himself in the Custom House pub and went back to the flat to have sex with her. He then wrestled her to the floor, sat astride her and stabbed her. Now, as this statement contained four completely different accounts in the one document, it wasn't treated seriously. Both Atkins and Gromek, they were homosexual men and had previous convictions for petty crimes, which made them, in the view of Satish Sikar, who has written extensively on this case, he he thinks this made them very susceptible to police pressure and it could explain why the stories changed according to what they thought the police wanted to hear from them. Yusuf Abdulihai had been questioned as part of the routine door-to-door inquiries. At the time of the murder, he'd been working on board the ship MV Coral Sea, which was some eight miles away in Barry Docks. Although he did not realise this at the time, his common-law wife Jackie Harris was having an affair with Jeff Smith, who was a South Wales police officer attached to the Vice Squad. His common-law brother-in-law, Ronnie Williams, was also a police informant. Williams began passing information to the police in March 1988, much of it unreliable, including a claim that Lynette had not actually been killed in the flat, but she'd been stabbed in the Casablanca Club in Butetown before being moved to the flat in James Street. Initially, he claimed that Abdullahi knew the identity of the killer and was concealing this information. But later he began to implicate him more directly with the murder and claimed that he'd been able to leave work at the Coral Sea in the night of the murder without his colleagues being aware. Lynette's friend Leanne Vilde had also been placed under pressure during the interviews, particularly as it was she who'd initially raised the alarm with the police who felt that she may be concealing information. The police arrived at her home every day which actually led to her being asked to leave the flat she shared with her friend Angela Pasela, who was also a prostitute she began lodging with another couple who also complained that the police were calling around to speak with her on an almost daily basis. Vilde was particularly vulnerable to pressure from police to help their inquiry as she was a, a lesbian, a single parent, a drug addict and a prostitute. On the 19th of May, while drunk, Vilde eventually named Stephen Miller and Abdullahi as the killers in front of several other prostitutes. That evening, she was questioned by police again and agreed that she had named the two men while she was drunk, but she said this was a false accusation. It was just drunk and rambling. Furthermore, she said that they were names that she'd heard from another police officer when he'd questioned her earlier in the day. Vilday was asked by the police if she'd agreed to be hypnotised, and a session with a hypnotherapist was scheduled. However, no new information came from this. Violet Perriam knew a number of police officers through her work at a local health club and as a bar person at a Cardiff Yacht Club. On the 10th of November, the day after Mr X was cleared of any involvement in the murder, Perriam told police that she'd been driving home from the club and had passed the flat at about 1.30am on the night that Lynette was murdered. She claimed that she saw four excited black males outside the building, arguing and gesticulating, and she recognised two of them as John Acty and Rashid Omar. John Acty had earlier responded to the door-to-door inquiries and told police on the night of the murder he'd gone to the Casablanca Club at around midnight and had left there at about 3.30am. John Acty was a cousin of Leanne Vilday's boyfriend, Ronnie Acty. Police saw this as the breakthrough needed following the collapse of the case against Mr X. Her allegation that she saw John Acty and others at or near the scene of the murder allowed the investigation to take a whole new direction. Angela Persaila, who we spoke about a few minutes ago, lived in a flat in Bute Town with a clear view of the front of 7 James Street. Another very vulnerable witness, she had an IQ of just 55. Armed with Periam's statement placing the group of black men outside the flat at the time of the murder, the police questioned her on the 17th of November and insisted that she was somehow connected with the crime. In the first of two statements she made that day, Busaila claimed that Miller visited her about 1am on the 14th of February looking for Lynette. Just two and a half hours later, she gave another statement claiming she saw Miller, John and Ronnie Acti, Abdullah Hai, Tony Paris and another man outside the flat. She also claimed to have heard screams from the flat and to have seen Ronnie Acti talking to someone in the window of Gromick's flat before being let into the building. Momentum seemed to be picking up here and the police excitement grew as their investigation appeared to be making some clear progress. They visited again Gromek and Atkins on the same day to take new statements. They both now said they'd seen a group of men outside the flat, including Ronnie Acti and Abdullahi. In his morning interview, Gromek stated he knew nothing about Lynette's murder, but by the afternoon he gave a very detailed account of the circumstances surrounding the crime. Gromick also said that he'd opened the door to the building to let Ronnie Acty in, and both he and Atkins now claimed they too had heard screams at night. On the 6th of December, Persalia was interviewed again. This time, she told police she'd actually been present at St Clair's court with Vilde. She'd heard screams and went to the flat at 7th James Street. On the same day, Vilde, Gromick and Atkins all decided independently to go to the police and changed their stories about what had happened. Vilde said that when she heard Screams, she went to the flat. Also there were Miller, Abdullah, Ronnie Acti, Tony Miller, that's Stephen Miller's brother, and an unnamed man of mixed race. Lynette's body was lying in the flat. The statements given by Gromick and Atkins fully agreed with this new version of what had happened. It just seems an unbelievable coincidence that all these Vulnerable witnesses independently provided a new version of events on the same day. But based on these statements, the police were now convinced they'd identified the culprits and it was time to swoop. Events picked up pace. The next day, the police arrested Stephen and Tony Miller, Yusuf Abdallahai, Ronnie Acti, Rashid Omar and Martin Tucker. John Acti and Tony Paris were arrested on the following day. On the 10th of December, the results of Persela's blood test came through, showing she was type AB, the same as found on Lynette's sock and trousers. Police interviewed her again, insisting it was her blood they'd found on Lynette. Persaila changed her story once again. This time, she told officers, that she and Vilday had actually taken part in Lynette's murder. She named Stephen and Tony Miller, Ronnie and John Acty, Tony Paris and Abdullah as the other killers and said Vilday had actually been responsible for cutting Lynette's throat. Incredibly, Vilday then gave a new statement later the same day, this time naming Stephen Miller, Ronnie and John Acti, Abdullah High and Paris as the killers, and revealing that the men had made her and Basela cut one of Lynette's wrists to ensure their complicity and continue in silence. The police now turned their attention back to Lynette's boyfriend, Stephen Miller. For the next four days, Miller was interviewed 19 separate times over a time span of 13 hours. For the first two interviews, police did not allow him to have a solicitor present. Despite the chaotic lifestyle lived by Miller, he only had a mental age of 11 years old, so this must have put him under tremendous pressure. Finally, after denying involvement in the murder 300 times, Miller cracked and confessed to killing Lynette he also implicated the other men suspected by police the trial of the five men took place in wales at swansea crown court starting on the 5th of october 1989 however it was halted on the 26th of february 1990 by the sudden death of the judge mr justice McNeil, from a heart attack the retrial again at swansea crown court began on the 14th of may 1990 at 197 days it was at the time the longest trial in British legal history, and it concluded on the 22nd of November with Tony Paris, Yusuf Abdallah and Stephen Miller being found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Cousins Ronnie and John Acty were acquitted of the murder, but the case had taken a terrible toll on both, who'd already spent two years in custody. Ronnie was later found dead in his back garden in September 2007, but police said there were no suspicious circumstances. The estimated cost of this trial to British taxpayers was over £10 million. The local community in Cardiff was enraged with the verdict, with local opinions strongly feeling the men were innocent. There was also a huge race issue. The main suspect seen at the time was white, and yet five black men had been sent for trial. Graffiti covered the walls of Bute Town and Tiger Bay, repeating the men's claims of innocence. The co-defendants hardly knew each other and didn't socialise together. The evidence for the conviction appeared very weak and there was no forensic evidence. A number of investigative journalists also became very interested in this case and television documentaries on BBC One with Panorama and also Channel 4, they ran investigations questioning the validity of these convictions. Other supporters of the so-called Cardiff Three included Al Sharpton, the American civil rights leader, who's now a trusted advisor to Barack Obama. In an address he gave in Cardiff at the time, he said, I'm happy to be here to talk to you about the injustice that's happened to these three brothers. It is clear that it's only because of their socio-economic and racial status that they are in jail. With the pressure building, the authorities had no choice but to allow the convicted men to appeal against their convictions and their appeal was held over four days, in December 1992. After listening to the tapes of Stephen Miller's interview, Lord Justice Taylor declared that short of physical violence, it's hard to conceive of a more hostile and intimidating approach by officers to a suspect. So horrified was the judge that he ordered copies of the recordings to be sent to the Director of Public Prosecutions and the Chairman of the Royal Commission on Criminal Justice as an example of what we hope we shall never again hear in this court. The convictions of the Cardiff Three were quashed and they were immediately released. Without Miller's supposed confession, there was very little holding up the convictions of Paris and Abdullahi. Sadly for the three men, this was just too little too late and their lives had been ruined. In their community, they were always recognised and associated with such a horrific murder in which they were not involved. Whilst in prison, they missed out on so much. Tony Paris tells how just before his release, his, his father died. He said, In prison, I remember the priest came into my cell at 5 to 11. I looked at my watch. I knew my father had died. As soon as they went in the door, I just knew my father was dead. Another of the three, Abdullah was treated for post-traumatic stress disorder on his release from prison and he died in January 2011 from a perforated ulcer. He was just 49 years old. After the convictions were overturned, police were under immense pressure to find a culprit. Launching a new inquiry in September 2000, they conducted a thorough investigation of the flat where Lynette was killed. This examination uncovered a DNA sample under layers of paint on a skirting board. Analysis of that sample led to the profile of a man dubbed Cellophane Man because of a blood-stained cellophane cigarette packet wrapper found at the scene of the crime. When it was run through the system, the sample did not produce a match, unfortunately, to anyone on the National DNA Database. By January 2002, technological advances in DNA allowed the case to move forward once more. Following the development of the second-generation Multiplex Plus, the SGM Plus test, forensic scientists were finally able to obtain a reliable crime scene DNA profile. Using the process of familial searching... In February 2003, police were given 600 names of people across Britain with similar DNA profiles, and one stood out above all others. This partial match was made of the profile of a 14-year-old boy, who had not even been born at the time of the murder. Police visited the boy's relatives, taking DNA from them, and they discovered that the DNA found on the skirting board perfectly matched his uncle, 38-year-old Geoffrey Gifford. Gifford had never been a suspect in the initial police inquiry. Officers raced to his house and got there just in time. They forced entry. Gifford was preparing to die after taking 64 paracetamol tablets. He told police, I did kill Lynette White. I've been waiting for this for 15 years. Whatever happens to me, I deserve. I sincerely hope I die. His trial took place at Cardiff Crown Court in July 2003. At his trial, Gifford confessed to murdering Lynette. This was a legal first for the UK. It was the first time in British criminal history where the real perpetrators of a crime had been tried and convicted after a previous miscarriage of justice. Patrick Harrington, QC, prosecuting, said Gifford, a security guard, was a loner with few friends at school or in adult life. His former landlord spoke of the lengths the murderer had gone to in the years after the crime to avoid any company. Barry James, who rented a flat in Cardiff to go for three years until 2000, described him as a loner who seemed a bit tormented. He would only speak to you out of necessity. My front door was only three metres away, but he would never dream of coming round to pay the rent personally. He preferred to get into his car and drive almost a mile to the nearest letterbox and post it to me instead. He added, He worked work nights, he slept most of the day, and he spent time on his computer. He was a bit of a vampire in terms of the hours he kept. The exception was when he went out to car boot sales. He was obsessed with bric-a-brac and and seemed to hoard everything he bought. His flat was just wall-to-wall bookshelves and ornaments. Everything he bought at car boot sales, it was really bizarre. Harrington explained the events of that night. He had met Lynette and went to her flat to have sex with her. He agreed to pay £30 for full sex, but once he handed over the money he changed his mind. He asked for the money back and when she refused, they struggled and he pulled out a knife which he carried with him in case of robbery. She was stabbed in the struggle. He panicked and there was a frenzied attack. Harrington said that Gifford did not simply kill, but he acted in a barbaric manner, stabbing and cutting over 50 times. He added, it's possible he acted in a frenzy, but the pattern of the injuries, especially to the breasts, suggested that it took a certain mindset who then carried on living the same boring life. Gaffour himself was unable to shed much further light on the killing. He said that while he would never forget murdering Lynette, his memory of what happened was patchy. He told the jury he could remember asking himself, why had he carried on killing her when I could have just left? I think I was very angry. I'll be guessing if I said why. Sentencing Gifford to life in prison with a minimum term of 12 years and 8 months Mr. Justice Royce told him, "You ended a young life in the most terrible and vicious fashion, and for 15 years you kept your guilty secret and evaded justice. Even as others faced trial for a murder you knew they did not commit. Two people who were not alive to see Caffore's capture and confession were Lynette's dad Terry and her brother Terence. Both were haunted by Lynette's murder and found it hard to cope with her death. Terry was found guilty of criminal damage." when he smashed windows at the local paper buildings in July 1992 after claiming he'd been badly treated by the media. In January 1996, he was given a 12-month suspended sentence for possessing a firearm with intent to cause fear of violence after admitting threatening John Actie, one of the men who was acquitted of killing Lynette. In November 1998, Cardiff magistrates heard that Terence was suffering from post-traumatic stress when he appeared on shoplifting, assault and driving charges. The court was told that Lynette's murder, when he was still a teenager, had sent him on a downward spiral of offending. In January 2001, Terry fell down the stairs at the family home, fracturing his neck and spinal cord. He was pronounced dead at the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff aged just 54. A police officer involved in the case at the time told how the murder had just preyed on his mind night and day. Before the year was out, Lynette's brother Terence was also dead after overdosing on alcohol, tranquilizers, and heroin. He was just 28 years old. Carol says that as well as murdering Lynette, Gaffour is just as responsible for the terrible toll it's taken on the rest of her family and the strain they've been forced to live under for the last 15 years. My daughter suffered. My family suffered. Lyn's and family suffered. They've been ill and under the doctor's. I've had constant nightmares and been in and out of hospital, said Carol, and all because of this monster. I had to live with my husband and son who suffered terribly. Now they are dead. I lost them both in 10 months to this person. As far as I'm concerned, he killed my daughter and he also killed Terry and Terence. Two of the men wrongly convicted of Lynette's murder, Tony Paris and Yusuf Abdullahi, were in court as Kafour made his admission. Speaking outside the court, Paris said, I'm very happy this is a good day. It's been a struggle, but we kept our heads up and kept going forward hoping the day would come. Gafour is a horrible person who deserves what he gets. He destroyed us all. I hope he spends the rest of his life in jail. Still bitter about the initial investigation, Paris added, I'm happy that South Wales police have done their job the second time around. We were set up by the police, who got people to lie to put us in jail. Now the world knows we were right and we never did anything. Are the original officers going to be allowed to retire and enjoy their pensions? It wasn't just Paris who was angry at the way the police had handled the initial investigation. The pressure following Gifford's conviction continued to build in the authorities and in November 2004 the Independent Police Complaints Commission announced it would carry out a re-investigation into the original police inquiry. From April 2005, a number of police officers were arrested in connection with offences of false imprisonment, conspiring to pervert the course of justice and misconduct in public office. In March 2009, the Special Crime Division of the Crown Prosecution Service announced sufficient evidence to prosecute officers involved in the initial investigation. In the meantime, in February 2007, four witnesses who gave evidence at the original murder trial were charged with perjury. In December 2008, three of the accused, Angela Persalia, Leanne Vilde, the two prostitutes we spoke about earlier, and Mark Gromek, who was White's neighbour, were found guilty of committing perjury, and each sentenced to 18 months in prison. Vilde's evidence to the court accused detectives of threatening to prosecute her for the murder of Lynette herself, and threatening her that her young son would be orphaned unless she changed her story. Mark Gromick tried to rely on a defence of duress, but the jury held him accountable for the lies he told in court. Despite both sides agreeing, he'd told the truth for eight months, and he'd only changed his account after extreme pressure from the police. Gromick stated in court that a detective had thrown a chair during an interview and threatened him with a blanket job, that's when they put a blanket over him, and beating him so that his marks would not show. He also told the court he was threatened with false imprisonment, unless he too changed his story. By the time the officers involved in the original investigation came to stand trial, all eight had been allowed to retire. On July 2011, the case commenced at Swansea Crown Court, with the eight retired officers charged with conspiracy to pervert the courts of justice, with four others due to face trial in 2012. To the horror of the local community and many observers, on the 1st of December 2011, the case collapsed. Essentially, the prosecution statement contained over 12 fatal errors and the judge decided that due to this, the trial could not continue as it would be unfair to the defendants. Files had been intentionally destroyed by South Wales Police's investigating officers. To be absolutely clear what happened here, this isn't some technicality. The evidence had been destroyed by South Wales Police officers investigating former South Wales Police officers, some of whom had only retired in 2009. Many commented that the decision for South Wales Police to investigate their ex-colleagues was poor judgement to say the very, very least. The expert on this case we spoke about earlier, Sika, commented It's a very, very sad day for justice, as it suggests you can ever prosecute police officers successfully if you can't do it in a case like this. Tom Mangold, the respected BBC journalist and broadcaster who covered the case for Panorama in 1992 and 2012, called it the biggest scandal in the history of British justice. Mangold also noted, if the 13 accused Cardiff detectives had been found guilty, presumably all their previous cases, hundreds, would have had to be reopened and re-examined. Instead, they are now considering suing the South Wales police. In 2012, the supposedly destroyed documents were found intact and in their original boxes by investigators. Stephen Miller, wrongly jailed for the murder, reacted angrily to this development, describing it as ridiculous. He told the independent newspaper, There has to be a public inquiry. Some of my co-accused have now passed away. Where is the justice for them? Astonishingly, following the collapse of this trial, eight former police officers and seven others sued South Wales Police for damage to their reputations. In June 2016, Mr Justice Williams dismissed their claim saying there were clear grounds for a case to be brought to court. Understandably, there is still bitterness in this case around the conduct of the police, and there's so much outstanding analysis and commentary on this, but that's for a different podcast to this. There are also issues for the courts, including how the tariff for Gaffor was sh- shorter than the ones given to the innocent men wrongly convicted. Granted, this was a difficult case for police, as Gafford didn't fit the mould of the traditional killer. After such a violent attack as he carried out in Lynette, we would have expected him to carry out more attacks to satisfy this bloodlust. Except for an incident four years after killing Lynette, when he attacked a colleague of a brick, there was nothing until he was caught 11 and a half years later. The final thoughts to conclude is It's really what we've seen in so many true crime cases. It's how the action of one person before not only ended Lynette's life, but destroyed the lives of so many others. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's edition of the weekly UK True Crime podcast. Please head to our website at UKTrueCrime.com. Sign up there and hear about some pretty exciting plans we have for this year. Leave us a review on iTunes and join us next week. Until then, bye for now.